You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wandri and Boonarong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) (laughs) A trio of voices. (laughs) What a treat. Yeah. So, yeah, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. It's the 9th of March, and we're saying hello to one new member and goodbye to another. Yeah. So it's Alice here, my last show. I'm so sad, but I'm actually so happy that I get to meet Jacob before I leave. And Jacob comes for Wednesday breakfast. Yeah, I'm uh, migrating from my my usual Monday spot, so this is definitely a um, a new environment. Obviously, quite sad that yeah. you know we're saying goodbye, but I think um, yeah, it marks a, a shift and a new era, and I hope it brings. Lots of fantastic content to the Wednesday breakfast show. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I yes, doubt it. And what kind of issues are you interested in, Jacob? What kind of stuff do you like covering? Yeah, well, I, I'm definitely a bit of a green thumb, I would say. So mm-hmm. quite passionate about uh, the climate crisis, as I'm sure a lot of people are. So I think um, this year in particular will be quite an important one. Uh, given that it's a federal election year. Yep. Um, and you may know last week the IPCC released a new report with some really damning evidence about where the country is going um, with with climate change. So I hope to bring some uh, really thoughtful content around that. Um, otherwise, I do really love anything that's queer or queer-related. Um, some of you may know I host a show called Queering the Air, which airs on 3CR every Sunday uh, at 3pm. So I love to to play stuff from there and talk a little bit about uh, my community and and everything that's happening. Um, But yeah, I'm honestly open to most things as well. I think there's such a broad range of topics that we talk about here at 3CR. Yeah. Um, And Alice, what's been a highlight for you, I suppose, (laughs) since your last day? (laughs) (laughs) What a segue. (laughs) Um, My highlight. I think I've really enjoyed speaking to people outside of my my community as well so I have spoken to quite a few people who are refugees and that for me has been something I've never done before um, until 3CR which is so wonderful about 3CR you get submerged in all these different communities and you find out things that you never knew like that's one big learning curve for me and yeah I've actually just loved speaking to people that I didn't know their stories and now I do and I feel like I'm a little bit better for it and I think part of that is speaking to one um one of the guests that I spoke to a couple of times last year Azadaraz Mohammed an Afghanistani woman who we spoke to on the show a couple of times we kept bringing her back because we wanted to understand 
um, her story and, and to continue speaking to her about her experiences here, especially um, with the Taliban in yeah Afghanistan last year. So that just stuck out to my head as a as somebody who I was so glad to have met and spoke to. Um, but I mean, I've also been in with the arts as well. So we're chatting today to somebody from La Mama. We've spoken to La Mama heaps on Wednesday brekkie and Monday breakfast as well when we were there because we were there f- and then we moved over to Wednesday, which is really funny. <laughs> um, I think everyone starts on the Monday. I know. Really. <laughs> it's the introduction, isn't it? <laughs> um, so, yeah, and being part of that real community arts um, kind of community as well has just been wonderful. Yeah, it's so, really special. It's so special. Yeah. Well, we're but very sad to see you go. I'm so sad to be going. But um, I've already said to everyone, I'm like, can I send stuff in? Like, if I speak to somebody and I like think it's cool for 3CR, can I send it in to you? And they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, on the so, Grand Reporter in London. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. 3CR special. Exactly. This definitely won't be the last. We hear your uh, dulcet British tone. I know. <laughs> My dulcet tone. So you'll be hearing from me. But Claudia couldn't make it in today, which we're also... So we are missing uh, another huge element to the Brecky show here on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah, it's a real shame. But, yeah. Um, yeah, Claudia's not feeling too well this morning, so we're sending her some big love. I hope Shout she feels to better. Claudia. She has done lots of work for the show today, despite not being here, so... She always does. Her input She's a legend. Here. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, what have we got planned for the day? Well, because I'm going to make this show all about me, it's going to be the off show. The Alice special. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to play um, my first ever interview on 3CR, which was with um, Dr. Caroline Tully, a witch and pagan priestess. So I spoke to her, gosh, like three years ago, 2019, I'm sure it would have been, yes. Um... And it was just as we were approaching Easter, so we wanted to talk a little bit about the origins of the Easter story and actually the roots in paganism and the goddesses um, named Estra, Ostera, and all these different wonderful kind of characters from the pagan spiritual side. And so, yeah, we spoke to, or I spoke to Caroline Tully, it was my first interview, and I just listened back to some of it this morning, it's really funny. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's very big of you to let us play your first interview, <laughs> Alice. I'm hoping mine's lost in the... In the ether. Uh, yeah. Well, I kind of started pretending that it was lost, and then Claudia sent it through to me last night. <laughs> I was like, oh, classic Claudia. She does her research. Um, so yeah, I already yeah. asked you twice, so I wasn't going to push it more, but Claudia went the extra step. <laughs> she did. So we're going to listen to that first ever one and have a good old laugh. And then I'm going to speak to Rosemary Johns, which will be my last ever 3CR interview. So Rosemary is from La Mama, and we're going to talk about her play, Fire in the Head, which is a, a new play that is kind of bringing to light a more harrowing and her heroic life of Kate Kelly, Ned Kelly's sister, and it's about the deep-rooted truths about gender and violence in Australia, taking a look at it from Kate Kelly's perspective. So we're going to speak to Rosemary about that at about ten past eight. Excellent. Can't and we're going to hear a little from you, Jacob, get a bit of a feel for yeah, style. get a bit of a feel <laughs> for this voice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, later on I'm going to be playing... 
a segment prepared uh, during the Midsummer Festival, which, as you may know, is Melbourne's premier queer arts and culture festival. It's very, uh, I guess, left of field, you could say. It's a play about lesbian space cannibals. It's Ooh. called Slotnik. <laughs> oh, know. my gosh. This sounds um, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Have we heard of this, this play before? No. No, this is the first oh. time I'm hearing. Okay. <laughs> well, let me, let me take you on a journey then. Please so, see. <laughs> yeah, I was fortunate to, to sit down with the writers um, and the director and a couple of cast members of the play and sort of piece together an, an audio uh, journey, I guess you could say, from, from start to finish. Um and that will be coming up, I believe, at around 7.45, so stay tuned. That sounds awesome. All right, and yeah, I'm going to be taking over Claudia's interview. Um, so at 7.30, I'll be speaking with Associate Professor Bridget Harris from QUT, um, and we're going to be talking about the use of technology in domestic violence against women, um, particularly in rural and regional Australia. Uh, so Bridget is the Chief Investigator at the Digital Media Research Centre, and the Centre for Justice at QUT. So that should be a really interesting one. Yeah, looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. All right. But in the meantime, we are going to start off with a song request from Alice, (laughs) uh, an old (laughs) favourite. This is Jive Baby on a Saturday night. Thank you. 
They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and before the break we heard The Jellies with Jive Baby on a Saturday night. And now we're going to take a listen to my first ever interview on 3CR, which was with somebody called Dr. Caroline Tully, an honorary fellow in the School of Historical and Philosophical sorry, Studies <laughs> at the University of Melbourne. Um, Caroline is also a professional tapestry weaver at the Australian Tapestry Workshop and a witch and pagan priestess. So, yeah, let's do it. Take let's it away. It's Easter Monday, celebrated by Christians around the world and a public holiday for us non-believers. I've always been curious about modern holidays and the origins of them. So this morning, we'll be speaking to Dr. Caroline Tully and find out the origins of Easter. It wouldn't surprise you to know that it all started with a female goddess and now we have a male in her place. There's a feminist history in this patriarchal holiday and it's been completely forgotten. But I think it's really important that we don't forget where these holidays came from. And in order, in aid of that, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Caroline Tully. And before we dive into all things pagan and the origin of Easter, could you tell us a little bit more about your area of studies and what actually attracted you to that particular area? Okay, well, actually, um, at, um, in my university role, I study ancient Mediterranean religions. And um, so... My origin, um, my interest in the origin of Easter is more from my pagan background, although it's been informed by um, my academic study. I found out more about it, which was why I went back to university as a mature age student in the first place, because I wanted to, um, you know, get the get the goods on ancient pagan religions from professionals rather than from actual pagans. Interesting. So, what about your pagan background then? How did you how did you start that? My actual pagan activity. Yeah. Well, um, when I was like 18, um, I met someone. I wasn't at all interested in supernatural things. But when I was 18, I met someone who had this library full of magical books. And I was like, what is this? This is intriguing because I hadn't heard of this. And I liked studying because I'd just finished year 12. So I was used to studying. And I just sort of started looking at his books and found it really interesting. And he was... Um, a well he was a ceremonial magician but he'd previously been um a witch and so he ended up sort of being my mentor for about a year and then he initiated me as a witch and then i uh then we moved to the country and we met some other witches and that that's when i sort of they introduced me to the alternative lifestyle scene that was in like the kind of probably 85 onwards and and then I, i just through them, really, I just met tons of Australian pagans, and I've just been involved in it, like writing for pagan magazines for years, and just 
yeah, really involved with it like that. And my academic, a lot of pagans mistrust academics mm-hmm. and they feel that the academics are sort of dismantling paganism. And to an extent that is true because um, a lot of uh, pagan history has been a little bit amateur and it wasn't until 1999 when Professor Ronald Hutton wrote a book called Triumph of the Moon and he looked at the history of modern pagan witchcraft and it showed up that a lot of things that pagans believed were historically incorrect or not true. Um, it just sort of showed the construction of paganism because it really, contemporary paganism is, it's not the same as ancient paganism. It does have remnants of ancient paganism in it, but it's really a child of a book called The Golden Bough by um, a guy called, um, um, oh God, what's his name? Sorry. <laughs> um, it's the last name is Fraser, J.G. Fraser. Anyway, it, anyway it's, um, it's, it's super complicated. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, it's a hard question. Sorry, yeah. I've gone on a ramble. No, no, no. I like that. <laughs> but have um, you seen have you seen a wave of of interest recently or in recent years? Yeah, definitely. Well, there was a boom in witchcraft um, in the late nineties. Um, we thought in Australia it was because Fiona Horn was publishing her uh, popular books on witchcraft and doing a lot of publicity. But it was actually happening in America and Britain as well. So I'm not really sure what was driving it there. But so there was a boom in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then in the last few years, there's been a, a giant boom of a more feminist intersectional witchcraft. A lot of it is American and they are very much on Instagram and a lot of them have businesses. So it's quite a different, it's quite a different scene now. It's young women and young men, but mostly young women being super feminist. Mm-hmm. And there were feminist witches in the 80s, but they weren't like the main witchcraft scene. They were sort of a, a was that side. Like a niche. That was a pagan yeah. niche. Yeah. I mean, they were influential, but the neo-paganism was really um, quite heterosexual, man-woman mixed groups. And these feminist-only groups, uh, women-only groups were there, but they weren't the main thing. But now with younger women, they certainly are. Wow. That's really interesting. Um, and where Easter comes into paganism, so we know Easter now as a very mainstream Christian celebration, um, but, and I think actually in my experience, a lot of people that I know don't even register the Christianity part of it. It's just Easter eggs, the Easter bunny, how much chocolate can I get? How many Easter eggs did you get? But where did where did these symbols come from and actually where did the whole celebration start? Okay, well, we know Easter is meant to be about the death and resurrection of Jesus, who is a, a Middle Eastern or a Near Eastern deity that's been adopted in Europe for centuries and centuries. Um, and I'll just give a bit of a background. Yeah, so, do. so Jesus. So the reason. Um, so that happened at around the spring. You know, Easter's around the spring equinox in the northern hemisphere, and that's because um, Jesus really was executed around that time, around the Hebrew uh, festival of Passover, which is also called Pesach. And you know, in some traditions, um, or Pesach, Passover, Pascal, the Pascal Lamb. So the Christians sort of have adopted that terminology, but. If we look at the Anglo-Saxons, they had um, the word Easter really comes from a goddess called Estra, and she's an Anglo-Saxon goddess, and she's a goddess of the east and of the dawn. 
And you might go, well, what's that got to do with Easter? Well, it's got to do with the spring equinox. So the spring equinox is like the dawn of the solar year. So if we look at the winter solstice, which is the darkest night of the year, when, you know, there's uh, the night is uh, much longer than the day. Then after the winter solstice, the days get longer, 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 longer until the spring equinox when days are equal and um, days and night are equal. And then after the spring equinox, um, the days become perceptibly longer up to the summer solstice, which is the longest day, and then they start to get shorter again. So the spring equinox is a bit like the dawn of the year because it's like the sunrise of the solar year. So so this goddess Erstra, she's um, got to do with the east. She might be the same type of goddess as the Hindu Ushas or the Greek Eos or the Roman Aurora. And what's really interesting about those goddesses is they're often, well, in the scholarship they're called predatory dawn goddesses. And saying predatory sounds a little bit ba- um, bad because you don't usually say with male gods who sort of... Uh, have sex with humans. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't really call them predatory, but these goddesses are called pre- the predatory dawn goddess because they often abducted um, attractive males and and made them come and live with them uh, in a supernatural realm. But what's interesting about those um, those particular males? They often died. Interesting. And it's a little bit interesting in regards to Jesus. You know, if we look at um, Mary as some sort of goddess, and then she's got this dying and rising sun, and if we look at um, Eos had, uh, uh, she abducted a male called Tithonos and she asked Zeus to give him immortal life, but she forgot to ask to give him eternal youth. And so he just became older and older and older and older until he turned into a little cricket and he just was just chirping away. Wow. <laughs> and that always reminds me of the film um, The Hunger with Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie because she's a vampire and she's immortal for some reason, but she has these lovers who she obviously bites and turns into vampires. But say, with you know, in the film, David Bowie's her main lover, and she, but she she can't make them. She's they're immortal, but she can't make them stay young. So they get older and older and older, and eventually she has to just put them in coffins up in the attic <laughs> of her room. And um, but they're not dead. They're still alive, still alive yeah. and kicking, just in the coffins. So there's some sort of. This, the, the dawn goddess has some sort of relationship with um, a dying and rising male figure, and you could possibly say it's the sun, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, James Fraser, who I mentioned before, because I forgot his first name, yeah. James <laughs> G. Fraser, who wrote The Golden Bear, he specifically linked the Christian myth with pagan myths um, to show that Christianity was just one of, um, you know, the greatest hits of ancient pagan religion and it wasn't really anything special you know or original at all yeah Mm. and um so do the symbols with the egg i mean the fertility um that because that's part of the spring equinox Mm. also as a symbol i believe yep um so the eggs kind of speak for themselves but what about the the rabbit or the bunny where does that all sort of fit into it well the rabbit apparently really derives from a the, he- the Easter hare, which was brought to America by German immigrants and turned into the Easter Bunny, and then that was re-exported back to Britain and its colonies, and that's where we get the Easter Bunny. But again, um, eggs and rabbits, and the, you know, rabbits are very prolific, and um, you know, eggs are a symbol of new life and that sort of thing. So I'm not sure why it was a hare in um, Europe, but apparently it was. Mm. And how has the modern story stripped um, all mention of women and women's power and fertility? 
Well, if we look at Christianity, I mean, well, Christianity is not, it's, it's kind of anti, anti-woman, anti-sex. And Mary, of course, is the sexless great mother, um, of Jesus. And, um, you know, she's not foregrounded in, although she's huge in Catholicism, but she's not foregrounded above Jesus. So, um, it's just as, you know, Christianity took over from pagan religions, the goddesses were, um, you know, um, suppressed and wiped out and, um, Christian doctrine didn't, you know, really want to mention any goddesses. I mean, it's, quite interesting that i mean we've even got mary at all as a um supernatural being because of course she wasn't supernatural but she sort of you know she ascended bodily to heaven and she lives up there so she must mm. be <laughs> she must be supernatural um yeah so it's just really a matter of um monotheist the monotheistic religions aren't very goddess friendly like judaism used to have goddesses when it was hebrew polytheism um but after the um hebrews were um, allowed to come back from captivity in Babylon, um, mention of goddesses and, and goddess statues, um, you didn't see them anymore. But before that, um, there's evidence of goddess worship in Hebrew religion. So it's something to do with monotheistic religion. Um, they, they, cause you know, God, of course, is meant to be sexless, but you know, everyone knows it's a man with a beard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We all have the image. And when people say God the Mother, they're like, what? Well, that's a bit <laughs> weird. Very controversial, yeah. And um, with Estra, how would people actually celebrate her in ancient times and now as well, I guess? Well, I guess the thing is with her is a lot of scholars question. So she was mentioned by the Venerable Bede, who dates to between, you know, the late 600s and early 700s. And some scholars suggest uh, that, that there's argument in, in whether she really was a goddess at all. Um, but what people, you know, may have done, um, they just may have done sort of fertility rituals. Um, so it, there may have been, you know, rituals involving flowers, sex, um, Dancing, you know, this is before TV, so people were a little bit more um, easily pleased. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, so those sort of partying activities, you know, because everyone, say it's a rural community, they're having to do lots of farming and animal husbandry, and these festivals in the year are a time to stop doing that, party on, and also also to eat meat a lot, because a lot of um, people didn't eat that much meat except at festivals. Mm. So it was it was um like a sa- was there a sacrificial lamb or anything like that would they sort of have a big ritual and then a huge feast afterwards with yeah lots of dancing and sex. Well, I'm not sure with um the Anglo-Saxons exactly what they did and also often these dawn goddesses say in the Mediterranean ones Eos and Ush uh the Hindu I'm not sure about the Hindu Ushas but Eos and Aurora they're not like in the major pantheon, they're sort of side gods. I mean, they're important, but and they're old, but they're not. Um, often they don't have cult, so they can appear in mythology, but there's not necessarily ritual going with them. Um, but the Angla, the the Norse um, Easter ritual was called Sigur Blot, and Blot means blood, and they often did some sort of blood sacrifice. And when you say blood sacrifice, it sounds really bad and sounds satanic, but that's because we have uh, Christian propaganda yeah. um, saying you know anything non-Christian is satanic. Um, <laughs> but 
animal sacrifice in the ancient world was one of the main characteristics of ritual and really what that meant, let's just call it a barbecue. Yeah. It's not about hurting the animal, it's about killing it, cooking it and eating it in a uh eating it with the gods. So um we know the um the Norse um you know had some sort of blood sacrifice. But so they didn't worship um Illustrate, but she because she's Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. But, yeah. Would blood sacrifice include human sacrifice? <laughs> you know what? I'm not really sure. If you f- watch the film The Wicker Man, you would mm-hmm. say yes. Um, <laughs> human sacrifice. Let me see. Well, you know, a lot of um, pagan religions, say in Mediterranean pagan religions, make a big deal of how they don't do human sacrifice. Um, I'm. I can't even think of any human sacrifice examples. Um, there is a theory with the solar year that um, either a, you know a long, 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 long time ago, either a king or his representative was killed at the summer solstice before he became too old, and so before his potency waned, he'd be killed. He was the sacred king, and um, it sort of fits with the solar year. Uh, so he may have been sacrificed, um, but I'm not sure of exact examples. Mm-hmm. Mm. And as a witch yourself, um, how will you be celebrating the equinox? Well, let me just... Now, this is where it gets into a problem because, of course, in Australia, it's not the spring equinox. No. It's the autumn equinox. So the whole thing of having Easter um, and other European imported um festivals in Australia is problematic because pagans, um, because our seasonal celebration is specifically about the landscape and nature, we early on, you know, notice when people start practicing, they go, hang on a minute, um, it's not winter solstice in December, it's the summer solstice. So pagans sort of, that's been a big thing in Australia is, you know, what do we do with the the seasonal calendar, which is called the wheel of the year? Mm-hmm. And we've had to kind of flip it or move it around six months so it matches up because, it, you know, it's an import from the Northern Hemisphere. So it matches up with the Southern Hemisphere seasons. But with the Christian calendar, no one seems to care that it's based on the seasons and has seasonal symbolism, um, and they just have sort of plonked it on top of the Australian landscape. So that's why we spray paint snow on the windows in um, December, in midsummer here, um, and that's why we're having a spring equinox festival in, in at the autumn equinox, and it's so annoying, but. No one seems to care. They just don't care. When you say, you know, this is like, um, this is actually a spring festival. They're just like, I don't care. I'm not listening. They're not interested. Yeah. And also a lot of urban people, they're not really paying attention. They're like, oh, it's winter. I'm a bit cold. But they don't really, you know, make a big deal about it. They don't sort of just think about winter. And, yeah. Oh, what festival will, is a good winter festival? So it's a big problem. Um, and that's another thing with Halloween. It's so annoying. <laughs> I just refuse to acknowledge Halloween in Australia because it's Beltane um, at that time in Australia. Um, and, um, Bel- you know, so that's October. Yeah. That's a early summer festival in reality. But yeah. Australians are, you know, woohoo, it's Halloween. It's which is, you know, a Celtic festival of death and early winter, and it just, I find it so annoying. Yeah, it doesn't make <laughs> any sense. It's just layered onto a totally different calendar. Very interesting. Yeah. So it is a, it's a problem. So we're going into the um, 
we've just had the autumn equinox. We're going into the next seasonal festival according to pagan calendars, which is called Samhain. Um, and Christian, uh, the Christian calendar is going and doing a spring festival. Yeah. So how will you be celebrating Samhain, or how did you celebrate okay. the autumn equinox? Well, I um, look at it as a sort of an underworld journey, so I would do something or did something that involves um, a sort of a, a, a descent to, well, it has to be abbreviated, of course, because, you know, if you, you're turning a mythological thing into a ritual, you, you sort of... Um, abbreviate it so it can be acted out so a descent or visualized a descent to the underworld um where you just sort of um do a meditation in the underworld so you might set up a ritual circle or something um invoke particular deities so for example because i'm really more of a mediterranean pagan demeter persephone and hades um i'll give them offerings i'll um, do an underworld journey um come back up again you know, when I'm down there, see if I get any messages. It's also like a cleansing. It's like a personal um, purging, going into the underworld and coming back up. It's like a rebirth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And is that a solo meditation, or do you do you have a group of um, witches that you do that with? Well, I don't currently have a group. I do it by myself at the moment, but I do give workshops. I did actually give a workshop on this topic um, about a week ago at Muses of Mystery in the city with a group, but I don't currently work in a group um, at the moment. But, I mean, there's a lot of public festivals um, you can go to if you want to do group activities in Australia, um, pagan festivals. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if um, our listeners are interested in finding out more about your own research or your workshops that you're putting on and anything like that, how, how are they best to, to follow what you're up to and to get in touch? Well, they can look at my academia page, which if you just Google Caroline Tully Academia, it comes up. So that's there's quite a lot of um, downloadable articles on there for free. Um, I've got a blog called Necropolis Now. Um, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm all over social media. <laughs> <laughs> that's very helpful. We'll put links to Caroline's social media on the 3CR Monday Breakfast page also so you can find her and um, keep up to date with what she's up to. Caroline Tully, thank you so much for meeting with me today. And, yeah, hope you have a lovely day. Thanks. You're welcome. You're on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And that was Dr. Caroline Tully speaking with me back in 2019 for my first ever interview on 3CR. Um, And, yeah, Caroline is a witch and a pagan priestess, and she was talking to us about the origins of Easter. Excellent. A nice throwback, Alice. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, next I'm going to be talking about the use of technology when it comes to intimate partner abuse. Um, So just before we get started, I'll give a trigger warning. This interview will deal with a range of issues relating to domestic violence and in particular intimate partner abuse. Uh, So if you feel this content may trigger or upset you, um, you may wish to tune out for the next 15 minutes. So with that said, our next guest is Bridget Harris. She's an associate professor at the School of Justice, Queensland University of Technology, and at the Australian Research and an Australian Research Council Fellow. Um, she's also recently co-authored a report uh, which explores the impact of technology on survivors of intimate partner abuse, uh, particularly in regional, rural, and remote areas of Australia. The findings showed that perpetrators use technology to control and intimidate women and their children 
causing fear and isolation. But this type of abuse was often not viewed as serious by the justice agents. So we're going to talk to Bridget now to find out more about why this harmful behaviour isn't drawing sufficient response from government agencies and justice agencies and the barriers existing in rural and regional and remote areas which affect women and increase the impact of technological abuse. So welcome, Bridget. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today on this Wednesday morning. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rainy day in Brisbane so far. Ah, you're up from Brisbane, yeah. Well, my family is there and I hear a lot of rain recently. <laughs> um, so you've recently co-authored this report which looks at the impact of technology on survivors of intimate partner abuse. Um, and I'm keen to hear more about what you found out. Uh, but first I'm curious to hear where you're at going into the research project. Uh, so what did you know about technology and abuse uh, when it comes to domestic violence? And what were you hoping to find out? My colleague, Dr. Zorini Woodlock, and I have been working in this space for a while. And so we didn't really have knowledge about how what we call spaceless abuse. It's not bound to any geographic location. But we didn't know much about how it manifested, how it was experienced, and the impacts in urban places. So this research was focused on women's experiences in rural, regional, and remote Australia. Okay, and this is a quality, qualitative study, is that right? That's right. So we spoke to 13 women, so we conducted interviews and focus groups, and that was in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland. Great, and you're speaking to these women about the use of technology in intimate partner violence. Uh, what, what are some of the findings? What did you find out, and how is this kind of abuse occurring? So what we found out is that technology is just another tool that perpetrators use alongside other forms of abuse. It's really commonly part of people's experiences of domestic and family violence. And we see it used to coerce control. There are behaviours that might be really readily identified and some of them are criminalised. And so these are things like sending abusive messages, stalking via technology, doxing, so that's the release of personal identifiable information. It might be release of, say, your address uh, in a public forum. It's image-based sexual abuse. It can also be things like messing with a device, so changing the functions of a device, impairing a function or activating a function. And this might be things like, for instance, with the internet of things, it might be turning the temperature up or down or like on and off. And it might be more subtle forms of, um, of changing things. So that you might you sort of wonder if you're imagining the presence of the temperature but we really need to think beyond that list and, and capture all the things that make survivors uncomfortable and fearful. And so it can be things like you know, using certain words and text messages, calling at certain times because you know somebody might be feeling vulnerable. So we had perpetrators do this for instance when they knew that it was around the time of, of night that women would wake up because they had traumatic experiences and they knew that if I, if I call at 3am, for instance, she's going to feel particularly vulnerable. But it also means that we're thinking about some of the behaviours that might be acceptable or normal outside of an abusive relationship. For a lot of people, they feel really comfortable and they feel safe sharing their location with their partner. But in an abusive situation, having someone monitor where you go, stalking has really dangerous undertones. And similarly, we might think about things like FaceTime or video calls have been really valuable during COVID and people have been physically separated. But we've seen FaceTime used to gain insight into where someone's relocated and 
security factors, though, for instance, you know, telling kids, uh, can you take me around the house and oh, show me the window or show me the doors? Uh, so it's the same behaviour, either sharing location or, or doing things like using the video technology. But because of the context of the relationship, because of the abuse that's worse, the control it has very different intentions and very different impacts on someone's life. Yeah, and abuse in intimate partner relationships, I mean, it's been occurring for a long time, but the use of technology is fairly recent. Um, and I imagine when it comes to the impact of it, it uh, differs in that it's almost even more insidious, particularly when it comes to women trying to leave relationships. Uh, is that something you found? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's all, I think it's always challenging if we, if we talk about escaping a relationship because there are so many ways that abuse can post-separation, but it's even more challenging with technology because if any time that someone might access a device or a digital media or a social media account that they can be exposed, so it isn't bound to any And um, sorry, Bridget, I'll just get you to talk up a little bit. It's a, a little tricky to hear. Oh, sure. Oh, that's uh, so we, we refer to it as spaceless, and so it isn't bound to any any particular location. And so it feels more inescapable there. And if you just think about the role that technology has in your life, in, in socialising, in, in work, in education, uh, in leisure activities, as well as things like households, so banking and everything, it's all of those different avenues that someone might potentially invade or where you could be exposed. And so it really just infiltrates so many different elements of your life. And uh, survivors talk about huge impacts on their their health and their well-being, their, their mental, emotional, physical health. Um, and it's incredibly intensive to try and labour-intensive and resource-intensive to try and prevent if you're thinking about trying to shut down all those channels or find new channels or find new devices. Uh, and it's just even more complicated if you have children as well and you're trying to manage all of their devices and, and potential access points. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just makes it that bit harder to extricate yourself um, from a situation. And um, you were uh, specifically focused on rural, regional and remote areas um, and looking at uh, barriers specific to those areas. Uh, what are some of the barriers you found there? So firstly, we can think about geography. In a non-urban location, there's limited services uh, there might be really fragmented public transport networks if they even if they even exist. Uh, there's, there's probably not any Uber or uh, taxis, and if, if there are, they're probably very expensive. You have to go much further when you're help seeking, and that includes the medical assistance. And so, what would be a serious assault in an urban area could potentially become a homicide in a rural or remote area because you're that much further from medical assistance. Uh, there might be really complicated financial arrangements, and that's especially if you, say, have a small business together like a farm. There's less educational employment opportunities, and so that's really something that impacts people's ability to exit a violent relationship. And then there's different social isolation. So unlike in an urban area where you might have some element of anonymity, you're much more likely to be known by the person that you're disclosing to. And that's incredibly challenging. Uh, you might have abusers that are really well-known and well-liked and it's even more confronting to disclose in that context. 
and we had uh, different women, so for instance, uh, culturally and linguistically diverse women, women on temporary visas, women who'd been criminalised or women who described themselves as having sort of alternative appearances. They said that they felt much more visible and also much more kind of ignored in rural areas. Yeah, yeah a lot of additional barriers there. Yeah. And um, when it comes to solutions, where does uh, responsibility lie? There's often an expectation that survivors will manage their safety, will disengage from technology, will change what they're doing. And that's not only unfair to ask somebody, but it's really unreasonable. So ideally, the onus is not on survivors. We should be providing information and resources to help people use technology safety, but we shouldn't be putting the burden on survivors. What we really need to be doing is thinking about more resources and services and the barriers in rural areas that exist. Uh, really putting the onus on perpetrators and thinking about great ways that we can harness technology. Advocates and survivors are doing really great things to use technology to provide information, support, to, to build community, to challenge victim-blaming narratives and to push for change. Uh, so they're all things that we need to be doing, but we also need to be really making sure people understand what domestic violence is and especially I think there's a lot of scope in the justice system here too uh, because... Technology is just another tool that people use and if you understand the dynamics of, of domestic and family violence and you understand how technology is co-opted and so greater recognition of what domestic violence is and also non-physical harm is really important. Yeah. Do you feel like that is um, understood by justice agencies at the moment? Well, look, some women in our study had uh, positive experiences of police. Uh, this was more likely to be if they were a specialist officer, and so that's someone who is, for instance, a domestic and uh, family violence liaison officer. But unfortunately, uh, most women did not have a good experience with uh, the justice system. There, there was a tendency to uh, discourage women from um, responding to this form of harm or not seeing it as domestic violence or not taking it seriously. Um, there were complications too when the perpetrator was, say, a former officer or well-known uh, and just a real reluctance to regulate. So either to uh, pursue an order or to look at a breach of an order if it involved technology. So unfortunately, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of scope to improve responses here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There needs to, uh, the issue needs to be taken more seriously. And as you said, we um, need to start shifting the burden away from survivors, as is so often the case. Absolutely. Um, now, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for this morning, Bridget, but thank you so much for joining us. There's a lot more to find out, I'm sure. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks, Bridget. And that was Bridget Harris, Associate Professor at the School of Justice, Queensland University of Technology, uh, talking about the use of technology by perpetrators of violence against women in intimate partner relationships in remote, regional and rural Australia. Um, so the report, Spaceless Violence, Women's Experiences of Technology, Facilitated Domestic Violence in Regional, Rural and Remote Areas, was co-authored by Dr. Bridget Harris and Dr. Delaney Woodlock. Uh, it's available at www.aic.gov.au. That's aic.gov.au. And if you are experiencing violence and, abu and abuse or are supporting someone experiencing violence or abuse, you can call 1-800-RESPECT, that's 1-800-737-732, or Lifeline on 13 11 14, that's 13 11 14, or of course, triple zero in an emergency situation.
such an important segment. Ella, thank you so much for bringing us that interview. Yeah, uh, well, thanks to Claudia too. I should credit her there. Of but, course. Um, yeah, really important issue, and I think we're seeing a lot more of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes um, at such a, an opportune time on International Women's Day yesterday, mm-hmm. um, which, mm-hmm. as we know, is a day to... Uh, talk about women's issues, even though domestic violence is obviously an issue experienced by everyone, but disproportionately experienced by women. And I think it's also a day to, to celebrate women as well. I mean, yesterday, I don't know. I know Ella was at the, yeah, uh, the street celebrated. party yesterday. <laughs> um, had some, had a great time, uh, hearing some amazing local femme DJs. Um, and Ajak Kwai was there, DJ Marushi. Um, and I'm also about to bring you a, a fantastic segment from two other female um, and non-binary artists who I really look up to. So this next segment is about a play called Slutnik, and it captures the experiences of five crew members as they try to abandon planet Earth, which is a planet pillaged by disappointing sexual experiences, <laughs> uh, straight men, and uh, dirty politics. So I think this, this next one will um, lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to speak with the writer Flick, director Tansy Gorman, and two of the cast members, Olivia McLeod and Jet Chudley. So this is about Slutnik. Take a look. The theatre is pumping and I'm so excited. What do you expect from Slotnik tonight? Um, outrageous uh, offers. If you're a thespian, you'll know what that means. Um, and just audacity. Audacity. Yeah. I, li- I like that word, audacity. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that's what being a slut is for me. I'm very excited and I've just been told that there's cannibalism involved, which I was not anticipating and has sparked more excitement for me. And yourself? I'm hoping it's like really slutty and there's lots of like dance moves and uh, lots of alien spaceship stuff and just like really, really weird. You long didn't read if it all is. Strap the fuck in. Because we're about to lift the fuck off. I'm Flick, and I am the writer-producer of Slutnik. Uh, I'm Tansy. I directed the piece. So how long has this been in the works for, and what was kind of the inspiration behind Slutnik? Oh, my goodness. It was about nine months ago, and we were actually... We met studying together, and it was literally a group assignment, and we were responding to this sort of feminist piece about women disappearing, and I don't know what it was, if it was, like the lockdowns happening again and again that messed up with my brain but I just had this concept that I became obsessed with of lesbian space cannibals and we couldn't use it in the assignment but Tansy and I happened to be at this queer event like an Ida Hobbit cabaret moment (laughs) and I'd heard that she was the most camp director in the course and just sort of on a whim, I didn't really know her that well, and I, and I just sort of posited to her, I said, lesbian space cannibals, are you in? And she said yes, and the rest <laughs> is history, <Yeah>. really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it. While you may have had your pussy devoured by a hot dike before climbing aboard, there are certain anti-gravity considerations to make. We recommend that you attempt to follow the 
reenactments during this informative video in order to increase chances of learning by activating kinesthetic intake of information. We had a couple of very, very raunchy uh, scenes. We had a um, uh, orgasming when you're a straight girl, and then we also had a motherboard teaching us how to orgasm in space. So I'd love to hear about how those scenes were developed. <laughs> I mean, not to self-report, but I guess, <laughs> but I guess you know, write what you know. Um, there's something, but I think there's something brilliant in finding something funny about like all of these stories that you know would be laughable with friends. Sometimes quite tragic. Um, it began as something. The orgasm scene in particular began as something that wasn't even connected to the show and was just something that I was developing with a room of women and just having fun with this idea of like how to fake an orgasm and, and, and what that sounds like and also the absurdity of sex and how actually like putting it on stage even in realistic ways is it's kind of goofy and gross like you can't escape from that and just finding joy in that um, and so those scenes versus SpaceX where I did kind of look into the effects of being in space on the body but also wanting to compare the idea that we see straight sex I guess in film and things a lot um, in very serious ways and often I think uh, queer sex can be made a joke of or, or is viewed in a specific way so I think in writing it and putting them so close together the aim was to kind of it's kind of funny watching the space sex because it's, it's you know much more geared to sort of this queer female lens and it's funny but in a way that you see it and you're like oh it's it's real and it's actually it's good and and the comedy is in that they're like really in fucking enjoying themselves um and so i mean that just came about the orgasm scene we didn't want to focus on just men we were like we're making this queer show we don't want it to be like ugh, it sucks being straight ugh, and just have it end there it just seemed so in such antithesis to tansy and i's goals of wanting to celebrate being queer and the joys of that and so i guess that space sex module came sort of after is like okay we've got a problem that we laugh at a lot but like also kind of look at this Anti-Gravity Kama Sutra, what a, what a fun time for us. And then um, Tansy really handled that really well with the actors. I mean, the positions. <laughs> Play Ariana Grande, Grande's position. Um, I know it was really important to us as well, if you're, we're doing a kind of queer show in a female lens, that it's not just like full-on glances and the touching of hands, you know, like every other like film about lesbianism so we were like well no because they're real people they've got bodies and they use their bodies so we're going to see it um and i was very very lucky to have an amazing cast of actors that really always yes ended me because i'd put something on the floor that was like this is the idea and i know it sounds cracked and they'd be like that's fun what if we made it more explicit and i'd be like all right great let's have a go at it then um quite a few sessions of me on the floor with them acting as the spot, like while we did lifts, me being like, yep, that's great, and come on, let's go. Like, <laughs> felt like a netball coach, but <laughs> it was fun. Um, and they were really great, and they really care about each other, and they care about each other's safety and bodies, and they're very respectful of people's boundaries, and so we kind of found a way of working within all of that that still made this kind of, like, these laugh-out-loud moments that an audience is like, I can't believe they just did that. And you're like, yeah, I, yeah, we did, and the actors didn't hate it. Olivia McLeod and Jet Chudley 
who acted as two of the crew members on the Slotnik ship, also sat down with me to share some of their thoughts. Yeah, I don't think I've ever done anything that explicitly sexual on stage, but I've never felt less uncomfortable, if that makes sense. Like, mm. I felt more uncomfortable with a handhold on stage. <laughs> I feel like it's just, yeah, it was such a... Like, I think... Um, Consent was really, like, sort of, like, written into the room. And, yeah, I just felt, like, never felt weird about it. And I'm glad I can do it because we can sort of lean into the joke a lot, which I think is great. Yeah, ditto, very yeah. much so. I also found uh, Flick and Tansy talked about how in this, the first How to Have an Orgasm uh, as a Straight Girl, a lot of the kind of sexual positions were typically, like, in air quotations, heterosexual sex between a man and a woman or someone with a penis, someone with a vagina. And um, I guess we were kind of really playing, amping it up and playing into this sort of, like, you kind of talking about all of the ways that that, that kind of sex can be so bad. Mm-hmm. And then in the scene where we're doing a lot of queer sex positions, we were talking about how it's quite heightened and exaggerated, but at the same time, like, it's quite statuesque and picturesque and taking that a little bit more seriously to find the beauty in it so that we weren't just portraying queer sex on stage as something to laugh at. Women, the world on their shoulders, their whole lives, and they are warriors and strong, feminine, beautiful mountains, curves, crevices, ankles, smiles, screams, grunts, rips, resourcefulness, that is sexy! I think the play really captured a lot of other kind of niche uh, AFAB lesbian experiences that I'm sure was really resonated with a lot of um, the audience today. What were some of the highlights or some of the most important parts for both of you to be represented on stage? Yeah, it's a bit of a gag to have an open mic poetry night sort of in the show, but for me that poem that um, is read, the love poem between two of the crew members is so important to the show and for me that's the climax and that's the bit that gets me every time just to have this unapologetically long and vulnerable piece of time in which we it's the only time in the show that we mic someone up and it's the only time in the sound design that Danny Esposito has allows a silence And the joy of sex for joy um, and outside the prying eyes of any sort of society or institutional structure that would seek to, you know, uh, control it or, or put it away is the most beautiful thing. And it's been the biggest joy in working with, you know, an almost entirely queer team. Um, so that for me is the most important part of the show. I would say the monologue about being sick. ER doctors, nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists, Helpline employees, many titles for people who ask you questions only to not believe the answer. I think that so often medical negligence is like a huge issue for many people and it's not something that people talk about. This idea of going to the doctor again and again and again and kind of, you know, saying the same symptoms and having them be treated for different things or not treated at all or told, you know, that's just something that happens. Maybe you're getting your period again and again and again is exhausting and we don't talk about it a lot. And I think having the opportunity to have someone just, like, simply sit on a stool and explain the reasons why it fucking hurts is amazing. 
paper, ticks, crosses, categories, pills, therapy, disorder, illness, treatments, plans, permanent. These themselves are, are air-stealing, eye-poking, heart-stabbing, back-breaking, arm-shaking, face-bumping, head-thumping. Jet Chudley, who performed the monologue about medical negligence, also had some time to reflect on what the performance meant. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very big and nuanced subject, and I think one that resonates with a lot of people, and that's something that really has both, like, is, I think is wonderful that it connects with so many people, and then also so kind of heartbreaking that it connects with so many people, because so many people have had to go through that sort of experience of kind of medical gaslighting, I guess, and, like, having your pain not being taken seriously. I think um, just trying to, in a very fun wonderful like upbeat play give that the weight that it deserves and the seriousness I suppose that it deserves um, and to not kind of throw it away is just another goofy thing that happens in this world but like acknowledging that it's a very real issue and one that people struggle with every day and handling that with a lot of care and for uh, both the character but also just everyone in the audience who may have resonated with that. Two, artificial insemination of mother with father's sperm. Three, artificial insemination of mother with donor sperm. Four, artificial insemination with egg and sperm donor using a surrogate mother. I think the show touched on a number of very, what I imagine to be niche, kind of female, queer <laughs> experiences. Um, is that something that resonates with you as well? And, and if so, was there one um, sort of moment in particular where you're like, oh, this is something that I've d experienced as a queer woman. Yes, there's a scene called Signaling where we essentially talk about all the mm -hmm. ways that we sort of presented as queer and heaps of them call me out, particularly putting the rainbow flag in my bio, which is my own line. <laughs> yeah. And the poetry open mic night. I went on a date with a girl to a poetry open mic night. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I'm a stereotype. Yeah. Ditto in that yeah. scene where we talk about signaling. I have a line that's, mom, dad, I'm cutting off all of my hair. And I did. And I said to my parents, Mom, Dad, I'm cutting off all of my hair. So it's like, whoop. <laughs> it's not as, you know, it's not a singular experience. Mom, Dad, I'm cutting off all of my hair. I'm not. I'm signaling my hair is gone. By fucking women. <laughs> By wearing Doc Martens. By putting the rainbow flag in my fire. What's next for Slotnik after Midsummer? <laughs> well, actually... Uh, in line, you know, as a little bit of a nod to sci-fi, actually, when I first started writing this, I said to Tansy that I really wanted Slutnik to be a trilogy in five parts. And so there was always planned to be, I know it's so cracked. I'm but employed <laughs> forever. <laughs> <laughs> that there's five shows. And so actually at the moment we're, we've, we're kind of two ahead. So we're developing Slutnik, um, the galactic retribution of Virgin Mary, which is on the ship in space. Um, in sort of like a few generations later. And there's also Slutnik, um, the planet of the incels, which is also um, in the future when they have none of the women on the ship have ever met a man because we're that far in the future and they have the opportunity to potential go, go down into an alternate planet that has men on it and they have to make that decision. How you smile, how you wake up, rub your eyes and tell me how bad it is. Don't rub your eyes, it's bad, you baby. Baby, the way you say baby, I love how you say baby. 
Slotnik has received glowing reviews, with The Age describing it as a wild and entertaining romp, and RMITV offering them a very slutty four and a half out of five. <laughs> it had, like, peaks of humour and peaks of sentimentality, which didn't yeah. linger too long so you could appreciate it without feeling bogged down by it. And then, like, the dance breaks were just, like, the cherry on top. A little bit of, like, experimental theatre all layered on top of each other. I was like, how can we get this many, um, you know, forms of art all in one, all on one, in one spot? <laughs> all of the audiences so far have been so kind and wonderful and so open to the show that it really feels like I'm just performing to my friends, which is a wonderful experience. World AIDS Day was on last... You're on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, joined by Jacob, Ella and Alice. Hello. And that was a little segment on a play called Slutnik, uh, which follows the story of a group of queer female space crew members as they embark from their journey um, into space. And what a fantastic yeah. play it was. <laughs> Sing very raunchy for awesome. AM radio before 8 o'clock. <laughs> I absolutely should have done a, uh, a language warning there, so apologies to any viewers who uh, were a little taken aback. What a way to wake up on a Wednesday, though. Yeah, a real right. treat. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be sat bowled upright listening. Tell me more. As <laughs> I'm glad. Um, well... Alice, mm. it's your, your last show today, mm-hmm. so um, we'll give you some, some more airwaves. Did you want to reflect on, on anything um, about 3CR or what's something you're going to miss when you return to the mm. UK about Melbourne? Well, I think, firstly, I, I've tried to have a little investigate myself as to whether something like 3CR exists at home in London so that I could get into the community radio scene over there. And there's no luck. There is truly, and I've been researching now um, for a while, and there's nothing like 3CR. There truly isn't. This is the One only the place. It, it truly is. I can't find anything that resembles it. I can't find anything that resembles the broad, the huge kind of variety of shows that they have here, the, the diverse voices, the conversations that are happening on 3CR. They're just not happening in any other station around the world. I truly think that's true and I definitely think after my research I can see that it's not happening in London so whether I have to go and make my own radio station who knows but um yeah it's just made me really appreciate 3CR on a whole nother level as well I just think it's such a unique station and the community voices and it's just led with yeah that at the heart of it community with love and rage (laughs) absolutely love and rage that's just 3cr radical radio 855 am on the dial i'll remember (laughs) it till i die (laughs) 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming if you're uh, like me and don't have a radio (laughs) (laughs) exactly that oh well thank you for those uh, beautiful reflections alice so we're going to jump to some community service announcements but we'll be right back with an interview in a couple of minutes. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. 
Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Hi everyone, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year and we rely on the support of the the community. One way to do that is to subscribe and become a member. Become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au or you can ring on 94198377. ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. Good morning. You're on 3CR Breakfast, joined by Jacob, Ella and Alice. Thank you. And now, Augie-nominated playwright Rosemary Johns joins us to speak about her new play, which is about to hit La Mama Theatre in Carlton, called Fire in the Head, which seeks to challenge the notorious story of the Kelly gang as we know it by putting Kate Kelly in front and centre. Um, with International Women's Day only yesterday, it's so great to continue on that conversation about women's stories and gender-based violence in Australia. So, Rosemary, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Could you start by telling us a little bit about your new show, Fire in the Head? Yes, absolutely. So, the play is about Kate Kelly, and it's really a lost story. Um she has a story that is every bit as tragic and heroic as Ned. Her story runs parallel to his. And in the early part, it fleshes out his story. But then the later part of the play looks at actually what happened to her um, later in her life. I mean, at the time of the Kelly insurrection, she was actually at Glen Rowan when the police set fire to the hotel. And there were hostages from the town inside that hotel, as well as the Kelly gang. And when Ned was um, taken to the old Melbourne jail um, and he was to be um, hanged, she actually walked the streets of Melbourne and got 30,000 signatures from people who were opposed um, to that hanging. And really, the whole chain of tragic events um, that led to Kelly shooting the two policemen at Stringy Bark Creek, robbing the banks, was that she was assaulted as a 14, 15-year-old girl by Constable Fitzpatrick, who was a policeman who was located in the area where the Kellys lived. And... Um, it was an outrageous incident, and um, he claimed around that time that Ned Kelly shot him because the family was so enraged that um, he had assaulted their sister. You know, she was only 14. Mm. And basically, um, when they turned up to arrest Kelly, he wasn't there, so they arrested the mother, Ellen, instead carted her off to jail with a little baby. She got three years 
And Ned Kelly said he'd turn himself in if they let his mother go, but they refused. And then that started the whole chain of events. Yes, that, that led to his death. So wow. I think she felt incredibly guilty about that. Um, and we explore that in the play. So the play <clears throat> actually takes place in the last days of her life. So she disappeared in very mysterious circumstances. Um, she was living in Forbes in New South Wales. She thought to escape the Kelly name because of the constant notoriety, the prying. I think it was a very difficult for her to live with that name. So she took the name of Ada um, Hennessy, and she ended up marrying a blacksmith um, uh, called Bricky Foster. Now, one one of the things that started me on the journey of this play, um, I discovered that um, an academic in Forbes had found out that her husband was sent to court for abusing her and made to pay a fine, and he left town. She had their uh, child, they, they had a few children, um, around early September. He turned up about a month later, and then he left town. He just was just there for 24 hours, and then he disappeared. He went back to his work on a rural property, and she disappeared. And she was found eight days later in the lagoon. And her body had been there so long, um, the doctor couldn't tell how she died. And the magistrate determined death by drowning and milk fever. So what I do in the play, I it becomes... It, it, it's written in a way, it's very fluid... It's non-linear, it's emotional, and because we don't know the actual circumstances, I push her by the lagoon, and she recalls the memories of her life. And now, here at the river, she meets death. Because, you see, the Irish believe that death is a beautiful young man. And because I'm putting death in an Australian setting, he has a mate with him who's a fiddler. And the fiddler in the play is played by the wonderful Irish fiddler, Peter O'Shea. So there's a fair bit of music in the play. Sorry, I've talked a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I was enjoying it. You started from the beginning and you just rolled with it. And I was enjoying listening, Rosemary, I have to say. Okay. But I I have a question for you, Rosemary. So... When you were doing your research and and when you yeah. were figuring out how you wanted this to to sort of sound and and how you wanted yeah. the play to come about, I mean, is it is it something that you had been researching for a, a while, or did you kind of stumble on Kate Kelly's story amongst other research for for other works? For example, I'm just trying to figure out how you yeah. yourself sure. came to that. Yes, yeah. well, strangely. Back, and that was a long time ago, but back in 2005, I was co-commissioned with two other um, writers to write a play for the commemoration of the Glen Rowan speech. And the three writers, the three of us, decided to write about the Kelly women. 
Now, that being Ellen Kelly, the mother, Kate Kelly, and Maggie Kelly, um, the other sister who was very much involved in helping the Kelly gang. Now, just the way it fell, I ended up writing about Kate. But the way that, and what was great about that play, if we had access to Kelly descendants in the Glen Rowan region, so we talked to them. And um, they were really adamant that Kate, because one of the rumors is, is that Kate was so depressed she committed suicide. And they were very adamant she did not commit suicide. But basically in that play, it was much more centered on Ellen Kelly. So it was really unfinished. I kind of left her basically at the time of Ned hanging. And then it's really weird as a writer, Alice, because sometimes characters don't go away. <laughs> they they stay in your mm-hmm. mind. And then around 2007, I read that a, a revolver, a gun, had been found, and it was auctioned, and it was found in the House of Hall. And it was claimed that it was... Um, it was an Irish constabulary gun, and it was possibly Constable Fitzpatrick's gun, the one who had assaulted Kate, mm. and that possibly she kept that gun all her life because it's quite interesting because if he lost his gun, he had to explain why, and so we also get the saga of you know Ned Kelly supposedly shooting him, but Ned Kelly was a damn good shooter, and I don't think he did just have missed him and shot him in the wrist mm-hmm. anyway. So that began, and then um, I read this research um, about, I can't remember, maybe around 2011, um, a Dr. Meryl Findlay, who lives in court, she found out about Bricky Foster being had up in court, um, being fined, and then him leaving town, and then him just turning up for a night before Kate disappeared. And then in 2014... My nephew married an Irish girl in Amar. Now, Amar, County Antrim, Ireland, is where Ellen Kelly was born. And when I walked those streets, all the Irish wow. came flooding back to me. And So I many links and histories so in different links. places. Yeah, and then wow. Kate just sort of kept coming to me. And then the other thing I have in my flat um, there was a beautiful, um, it's not there anymore. It was um, a, a shop at the market. It was run by First Nations people selling, you know, First Nations paintings. And um, I got a, a painting there. It's the, it's a net, it's a painting of Ned Cully in the um, Southern Cross. It's done by an Indigenous artist. So, wow. Um, yeah. That's such, it's such an amazing um, to listen to you speak about all of the research and the history and the links that you've pulled together over the years to create this yeah. play. And we've yeah. actually run out of time for our chat, but it was so interesting <laughs> speaking to you, Rosemary. Oh, thanks, Alice. No worries. Encourage people to come along. Absolutely. Um, and especially um, the second performance, Thursday, 7.30, St. Patrick's Day for all those. Want to raise the Irish? Oh, fantastic! <laughs> so, listeners out there, take yourself to La Mama Theatre. Um, you can look at them online, lamamatheatre.com.au, and it's Fire in the Head. Rosemary Johns um, was the playwright. Thank you so much, Rosemary. Thanks, 
Alice. Thank it's you. It's very kind of you to give me time. Thank no you. No problem. Bye-bye. Goodbye. And for any other listeners out there, um, obviously there was talk about um, death by suicide and some crisis. So please, if you feel like you need some support after that, um, call Lifeline 13 11 14 and take care. Excellent. All right. And now to round out our Alice Extravaganza show this morning, uh, we've actually got a couple of highlight clips prepared by Claudia, who, as we said, couldn't be here today. So she's passed them along to me to deliver, Alice. I'm very excited. Sweet. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So I believe this first clip uh, looks at how Alice is always ahead of the game. Um, We're going to be looking back on your coverage of coronavirus first up. This one, uh, yeah, it looks at your coverage. So at the time before, very early on in the COVID outbreak, before there was a pandemic as we know it, uh, Alice took it upon herself to enlighten us all on the important facts about COVID-19. She'd just returned from overseas and was keen to share her new insights. So let's take a listen. Wow. Good morning, Alice. Good to be back. <laughs> Alice, back from Abu Dhabi. Yeah, back. How was that? In Australia. Um, yeah, it was really good. So my sister is a teacher, so I went to visit her for a bit. And she gave us a bit of a tour of the local school that she works at. And yeah, it was interesting as well, because we just left and they put the whole school into lockdown um, because of the coronavirus. And she's now doing viral lessons um, and so nobody's allowed to come into like contact with each other like virtual lessons you mean yeah did i say virtual <laughs> viral. Viral. <laughs> it's gone viral everyone <laughs> uh yeah virtual it's very early and so and what was what was traveling like with the coronavirus like what what's the feel in airports is everyone wearing masks a lot of people were wearing masks yeah there were heaps wearing masks um and i i, I wasn't I guess I hadn't thought about it. Um, oh, I guess I knew it was there was going to probably be something, but I hadn't hadn't thought about it at all. Yeah, I think the word is masks actually don't protect you if you yeah. don't have coronavirus. It's only useful if you already do. And I think also there is only benefit on having a mask that's like of, of really good quality that can mm-hmm. actually flow the air in and out. Otherwise, yeah. you're making it really damp around your face, which is put like potentially sure. more. Yeah, more um, damaging to your health because it, it can attract that, that sort of bacteria and, and the virus, so I'm told. <laughs> I'm not a medical expert. Were there any issues with toilet paper supplies? <laughs> On the plane, that would Plenty of toilet paper for all my needs. Um, no, I didn't have any. There was no issues that I saw. You're back on on 3CR uh, Wednesday breakfast. Maybe we can go around and have yeah. a little Alice round of appreciation. Yeah, um, so I'm just going to say, I mean, I only met you this morning, mm. Alice, but, you know, the the energy and the uh, the vibes that you give off are just immaculate, oh I must gosh. say. And I have been a long-time fan of, um, of your reporting. I do remember you've done some really insightful pieces um, around COVID, as Claudia said, yeah. but exploring a lot of other issues as oh, well. Thank you. Yeah, what's been a favourite interview for you? Gosh, there's been so many. There's been so many favourites. It's so hard to pin down. And I think the wonderful thing about breakfast is that you get to explore a lot of that. So um, you get to... Yeah, you you get to travel. You get to travel with your reporting as well. You know, like you can talk to people and what's going on internationally as well as based as well as community focus. So, I think I took some of that in 
with my reporting and I think part of that when I first started was also looking into like the aftermath of Brexit obviously I'm from the UK it's hard Mm. to leave that behind even if you come to yeah a new place so I was really focused for a little bit in understanding what was going on at home and the aftermath of that and so I brought some of that with me into my reporting at 3CR in the early days and I actually loved, I did this interview that really stuck out to me in when we were in lockdown and it was about citizen science and how everyone can be a scientist and how you can that report was a great things. One. We yeah. had it on our highlights for the year. I picked that one and yeah, I loved it. Um, I, I loved speaking to them. I absolutely loved it. I spoke with two scientists or maybe even three scientists. I'm trying to recall it now, but it was about a 30 minute segment and yeah they were just really encouraging and saying you can you can have a direct impact on your the environment around you you can go outside look at the look at the same flower every single day and understand what is happening to that flower mm. what insects are coming and visiting that flower what it what what does it look like in the morning compared to in the evening? And you can go online and just report some of this. Yeah. And you're actually contributing to a wider knowledge about the environment and that, that kind of science in your area. And I just thought that was so empowered. Like, it was quite powerful knowledge to know that. Yeah, yeah, really incredible. Mm. So that was another one. It's so hard, though. There's <laughs> of so course, many. So many highlights. Yeah. Um, now, speaking of highlights, we are running out of time this morning, and I believe we've resolved our technical issues. Apologies to listeners. Um, so I did want to play our last clip prepared by Claudia today. Um, so, as written by Claudia, Alice's warm and bubbly personality lights up the show. She's a spontaneous soul who can always be counted on to make us laugh. Uh, so here are a few colourful Alice moments to warm our hearts and remind us of her charm. I love that. And there's me and Claudia. <laughs> we have officially arrived. Excellent. We just wanted to leave you in a little bit. And Judith, um, how have... How have you been? It's been so long. <laughs> well, I've I've been busy. I, last year doing um, communication mixdown, done some broadcasting on three triple R, and now I'm getting ready for a big road trip and do some bird watching. Ooh, a road trip. I started my three CR adventures with Judith um, on the Monday Breakfast Show, so it's so great to have you here with us, Judith. It was an amazing year, Alice. (laughs) It really was. I was brand new to radio, and um, yeah, Judith really helped me figure out the ropes and yeah, taught me a lot, so thank you for that. And you taught me too, of course, (laughs) (laughs) because uh, I didn't know much about podcasting and how to put the podcast up, and you (laughs) came in with all that knowledge and taught me, so... That's a great thing about community radio, isn't it? There's always this reciprocity and learning from each other and supporting each other. I've really felt that in the la- over the last three years at 3CR, and it's just been such an amazing community. Lots of memories. So many memories. Rumours that your uh, first interview ever was with a pagan witch, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to see yes. if I can track that one down. I, I remember when she nice. told me this is what she wanted to do for Easter, <laughs> our Easter broadcast. Yeah. Thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. I thought, well, Alice is going to add a <laughs> <Yeah>. lot. <laughs> I remember the press conference was 
very interesting to watch. I mean, was that the first time that you had spoken out to the media as well? Yes, it was the first time that I that I'd spoken in the media, and it was a new experience. It was a fascinating experience. And then it was off to the electorate office at the back of the parliament where we left our bags. And every time that we moved anywhere, we had to be escorted by a minder, including we had to go to the toilet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Just yes. being escorted around Parliament all the time. It felt like we were on a school trip and that we were like little kids let loose in Parliament and they were just like, no, 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 this way, children, come here. There's a lot going on in the UK and so my mum is a massive like Costco fan. Like, I don't know, I know Costco is big in America and it's and we've got a massive one at home. It's just like a big wholesaler. Yeah, we've got them we've, in Australia. Have you got them here yeah. as well? Yeah. That's so funny. Like, do you have them here? <laughs> oh, cute. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, keep you updated. I'll be your correspondent. Actually, you correspondent. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.